You are listening to the Dark Fantastic Podcast. On this episode, author and world-renowned Sherlock Holmes expert David Stewart Davies joins Ahmed Khalifa to talk about Mr. Davies's latest book, Revenge from the Grave, The Value of Victorian Literature in Turbulent Times, and why Robert Downey Jr. makes for a problematic Sherlock. Basically, you've written tens of books, novels, and short stories, short story collections, covering many genres, but you were also the series editor of the Tales of Mystery and the Supernatural, published by Wordsworth. And I think it's one of the finest curated series of, of European dark literature of the past, I don't know, 50 years maybe, because I, I'm a huge fan of Victorian and Edwardian gothic literature and i go back to the you know the old books and the public domain books and um, compared to those i haven't really come across any series like the series you edited uh, the, the selection the the introductions they are just amazing and and i told you about this before in our last conversation so i want to talk a little bit about them because about the series because uh, they are still being printed today, they are available as paperbacks, they are available as ebooks. So I want to know a little bit about how you got involved uh, with, with the series and what was your vision for the series going in? Well, I've always had um, an interest, stroke passion for ghost stories and Gothic literature in general. And uh, I suppose it's not a far stretch from Conan Doyle um, to, to horror stories and ghost stories, because obviously Conan Doyle himself wrote a, a number of those. And it was just because I was doing a lot of introductions to uh, the Conan Doyle stories, the home stories with Wordsworth, that they came to me with the idea of, of, of you know, extending my uh, my privilege with them uh, to do uh, introductions to that. And I did a few. And then they asked me if I'd take over as sort of uh, you know, overarching the uh, editorship of, of that particular strand of their publications. And in, in essence, uh, it, it's, it's a, a like a, a fun factory because the, uh, as you mentioned, Victorian and Edwardian literature is chock-a-block with great uh, horror stories, ghost stories, gothic stories. It seems that every author who was writing in the 19th century and in the early part of the 20th century, whatever their main thrust of, uh, of uh, literature was, they would have, they would uh, dabble a little bit in, um, in uh, gothic or horror fiction. I mean, Thomas Hardy, for example, uh, wrote those kind of tales, Robert Louis Stevenson and so forth. And from Wordsworth's point of view, um, because the stories were out of copyright, we were, we were able to pick and choose. And uh, I was familiar with some of them, but, uh, but because of the choice there, I learned a lot myself, you know, and enjoyed actually familiarizing myself with new material. So what was 
aside from of being a fan yourself of of the of this type of fiction and 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 this era did you have a vision in mind or did you have a goal in mind when curating and and editing the series not an overarching goal no i mean i took each author or each collection on its own merits and in my introductions try to illustrate why the reader should enjoy the contents of the book and analyze any uh, approach that the, each individual uh, writer was was aiming at i mean uh, probably the the most famous and uh, most popular would be mr james and uh, a great fan of mr james i was and so i was able to um, you know reacquaint myself with the stories and come up with thoughts about uh, the man himself and about the way that he divided his life, uh, his academic life, from the sort of what I would consider to be his fun pursuit of writing that Christmas time ghost story for his, uh, his academic fellows. I was reading this year, because I have, you know, whenever I go to uh, London, uh, or or anywhere in the world, actually, uh, because the the Wordsworth series, uh, the Tales of Mystery and the Supernatural that you edited, is actually available in several pl places around the world. You know, in English-speaking yes, countries. So, uh, whenever I find uh, a copy of uh, of one of the you know of the of the of the of, the, of these uh, books, I I just buy them. And I have a huge collection of them. And most recently, I got my hands on an edition of Uncle Silas uh, from, the, from that collection. And it was the first time I actually read the book because I, I had a huge problem getting a copy, getting a good copy of that book. I don't know why. It was somewhat rare for a while. Yeah. And uh, it was uh, the, the, uh, the, the Tales of Mystery and the Supernatural edition. And it had, it had an introduction, not by you, uh, by someone else. I can't remember her name. It was also a great introduction. And I'm, I'm just mentioning that because, as I mentioned earlier, these edi editions are still available around the world as paperbacks. And the covers now are, the artwork is, is even better than before. And for a lot of people uh, like myself who didn't grow up in uh, an English-speaking country or who didn't grow up in the UK, it was my first introduction to writers like maybe the supernatural tales of Conan Doyle or Lefano or Edgar Wallace or people like that, or M.R. James, as you mentioned. So I think the impact of these books is I think is greater than a lot of people might think. So are you aware of, 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 of that impact? Yes, I think so. I think what is interesting about most of those books, most of those stories, uh, is that they present a, a, an England or, or a, an area of life that isn't, wasn't quite natural anyway. Um, we use the word supernatural. And I think that, uh, for example, with the Wilkie Collins book, that there is a sort of layer of unreality 
that uh, he weaves into the the story dickens did the same so you're not actually getting absolute factual uh, background you're getting something with a the mist of gothic uh, filtering across it which makes it more interesting more exciting too and more involving it, it sort of draws you in because it's not quite life as it was and certainly not quite life as it is now and i think that um those authors whether consciously or unconsciously i don't know um were able to actually create their own little worlds which had strong elements of reality but also that as i say that sort of mist of uh, mystery gothic quality uh, into their texts yeah it's, it's just uh, as you mentioned in our previous conversation people uh, when they read the, the sherlock holmes stories for example at the time they were written they weren't really that escapist uh, you know they didn't look at it as, as such pieces of escapist entertainment as people see them now now people read them to get into that whole you know atmosphere of the of the gothic victorian england and the fog-bound streets and the, the 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 gas lamps and and so on but i think back then uh although you you just mentioned that even back then these stories weren't really naturalistic they weren't really that that realistic but i think for a lot of people younger people uh, especially because i started reading these books when i was i think just uh, in my maybe second year of uh, of university and i remember i i had already gone to london by then i had already you know traveled around the world and i i knew what what the uk actually felt like and looked like and what london looked like and i fell in love with the uk the first time i i you know i I, I arrived there I just fell in love with the country and the people and especially uh, London and but I back then even then I could see the uh, the appeal and the romanticism in these books that didn't really correspond with the contemporary reality yeah. but but it's but still it's, it's it's just magic you know these books are just magic and uh, they preserve I think a part of of the UK and its history and its mood, and the viewpoint of these writers that came from that Victorian era, that you just don't find today. You know that romanticism has just gone by the wayside now, and uh, for better or for worse, you know, it depends on your viewpoint. The world has shrunk, and uh, because and of technology, that, it was a much a smaller world um, in one sense. Um, and now it's a much bigger world, but, but in, in, in essence, it shrunk in the sense of um, the element of adventure and mystery. The, there's very little mystery in the world today because it's all solved by switching on your computer or uh, picking up your mobile phone and so forth. What do you think can be done today to entice younger readers to to engage with some of these classics even to this day i always find some resistance 
from younger audiences when you talk about these books, uh, Lefano, maybe not so much Conan Doyle because Conan Doyle is, is always voguish, you know, yeah. uh, because of Holmes, the home stories and the movies. But when you talk about Wilkie Collins, when you talk about M.R. James, when you talk about E.F. Benson, uh, and even, uh, I don't want to get into other genres of fiction, but even when, when, when you talk about uh, Anthony Trollope or people like that, not Charles Dickens, because again, Charles Dickens is always voguish, but when you talk with the younger audiences about these books, you find resistance from them and even the professors and, and the faculty and, you know, whoever is, is responsible for directing the students, you find resistance about embracing uh, these types of books and books from that era, especially now, because, you know, the culture is going through a certain mood swing, let's say. So what can be done from your point of view to entice younger readers to sample these books and get into this type of, of, of literature? I, well, it's a, an impossible question, really. I don't, I don't, the honest answer is I don't know. But it is interesting because um, I think part of the problem is that life is now so speedy. Everything has to be quick and, and, uh, and over in a moment. And so many of the books that we talk about, like the Wilkie Collins books, The Woman in White and so forth, they're quite big tomes. And I think a lot of young people being faced with a, a book of, you know, a thousand pages um, can't be bothered to, to plow their way through it. They want something quick and, and you know, something on, on YouTube or something on the television. Um, one way, of course, would is through dramatizations um, that allow people to see the stories come to life before their eyes and then might lead them to um, to pick up the book. It's it interesting that the um, the Sherlock series with Benedict Cumberbatch was, uh, although it was a modernized interpretation of the Conan Doyle stories, um, drove a lot or led, should I say, led a lot of young people to pick up the original stories and start reading um Conan Doyle's version of Sherlock Holmes and that was very good because the uh, membership of the Sherlock Holmes Society of London for example um, grew tremendously during the course of that particular series. When I was a teacher years ago and I was teaching Bleak House, uh, one of my favorite Dickens novels and uh, I had one student after the exam, came up to me and very sheepishly said, you know, Mr. Davis, I never read the book. It was too big for me to take. So I bought one of these little help yourself books, you know, get get through your literature exam book. And I did it that way. Um, and I thought that, to, to some extent, sums up a lot of the young people's attitude too. To, if it looks difficult, if it looks long, um he's going to be discarded and rejected i agree with you 100 percent um that maybe yeah condensed versions and dramatized versions like the the dramatized uh audio uh versions of uh of your plays for example which uh, you know i just love and uh, 
uh, and also uh, audio books because there is this website called it's a, it's a free website called librivox and i don't oh, know yeah. if you yeah librivox is just amazing uh, the quality of course of the recordings is is you know varies from one book to the next because it's all done for free it's all open source but i, I guess following up on what you're saying i'm i'm sensing that a lot of younger people maybe not teens maybe people maybe young adults in the early 20s are starting to get into these books a bit through these you know uh, uh, free audiobooks of public domain literature they just they just download chapter by chapter uh, and read read it like that like bleak and, house and for the thing is if you do it that way you you can be doing other things you can be having a meal you could be driving the car and listening and so forth because life today is so speedy uh, that to sit down with a thousand page novel uh, and and start to read it takes up a lot of time and people uh, have very busy lives now it seems that you know you look back at sort of um, newsreels of people uh, just after the war or into the 50s in England anyway in Britain uh, and how casual that the life seems to be that the streets were were not thronged with people the the, the, the roads hadn't as many uh, cars and vehicles on them it was a much easier time and people had time shall we say to read and of course um, very few people to begin with after the war and into the 50s didn't have television at all it was radio which is which is really a a medium of words uh, today, it's everything is so fast and sharp, and so novels of length um, and novels of beautiful, convoluted English, shall we say, uh, are are a bit alien to the the modern mind. Yeah, and uh, I think also this idea of you, you just mentioned uh, radio. Um, back then, radio was 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 just a, a medium of words. It wasn't a visual medium. Now we are a very visually oriented, obsessed uh, culture. Yeah. I think also the idea of podcasts, uh, which I, which I love now. I was I, I was resistant to podcasts like ten years ago because I'm also a huge fan of old time radio and I love the the sound of radio and the feel of, 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 of these radio dramas. Uh, but podcasts, I think, are basically, you know, causing a revolution because now a lot of people just, uh, they don't like radio, the idea of radio, but they like the idea of podcasts, which is basically the same thing. It's just a matter of presentation or perception. So the idea of podcasts is presenting, again, uh, some of, some older maybe uh, pieces of fiction and uh, maybe different perspectives coming from the victorian and the edwardian era i'm talking not about the politics i'm talking about the art yeah um and uh, again yeah the you you're quite right i think maybe that's uh, that, that's the way to go and this is very you know fast word. Yeah. yeah but i want to move on a bit uh, to uh, back to your work uh, because uh, you've written a lot of fun escapist mysteries, but you also write a lot of fiction which has a social realist bent uh, somewhat, like the Paul Snow series and 
even in your uh, more lighthearted work, uh, like some of your Sherlock Holmes uh, books, there is this hint of realism in them and a hint of social commentary that, that wasn't really there, maybe not in that way in the original stories. How do you usually go about mixing these two you know, approaches or styles and do you always intentionally, intentionally try to offer a bit of greens with the pudding, let's, let's say, or is it mainly un unconscious on your part? A lot of it is unconscious, particularly in the Holmes stories. Um, I've always found it um, interesting to, to note that uh, if you read Conan Doyle's original Holmes stories, there's very little um, background detail um, you know, sort of, uh, it doesn't go on about uh, the fogs and the uh, handsome cabs as much as people seem to imagine. Um, he, he was writing for a contemporary audience, and the contemporary audience would know the background uh, in which he placed his characters. It is only people later on who, who sometimes in, in pastiches, who over-egg the pudding with the background details and references to buildings and, and to things that are happening. From the social element point of view, I mean, you mentioned the Paul Snow series. I was very keen to highlight the uh, unfortunate plight, shall we say, of uh, the homosexual man in, in a period when, uh, you know, he was vilified. Um, and the ideal that um, Paul Snow was a policeman in the 1980s um, who was a homosexual, repressed homosexual for most of the time, but uh, terrified that uh, it would be uh, discovered that he was so because his career as a very promising uh, police inspector would be, um, uh, would be discovered. And uh, when the book came out, the first book came out, um, I got messages from actually from policemen who had been in that position in the uh, in the in the 1980s who who uh, you know told the horror stories of uh, in their little messages to me so it was it was comforting to know that i got the scenario right and of course it's a, a far different picture now a much more healthier picture for uh, for those people uh, today um, so it was it was good to be able to weave that into um, basically a you know a, a mystery thriller. I have to say that um, I I really 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 loved uh, Revenge from the Grave, right? Because uh, the, the the thing I like about your work, and that's why I'm so excited always to to get a chance to 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 talk to you or to talk about your work is that I've been, uh, you know, I've been, since I was maybe in my early 20s, uh, when I started really getting into uh, the Sherlock Holmes stories, the, the, the original Conan Doyle stories, once you get through the, uh, you know, what, what, all that he wrote, and all that he wrote is actually not that huge, you know, he wasn't, the, the number of Sherlock Holmes stories and the novellas, uh, once you get going, you actually find that there aren't that many. There are more prolific authors out there. He was prolific, but not in the Sherlock Holmes canon, maybe, 
or maybe no. I'm just greedy. I don't know. But uh, it wasn't really. Once you get through them, once once you finish them, you just have to go to the pastiches because that's that's the only thing left to scratch the need and 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 stay away from the original canon for a while. So what I love about your work because I've I read a lot of of uh, of Sherlock Holmes pastiches. Some of them are good. Some of them are awful. To be honest, uh, what I love about your work and from the beginning since I read the Tangled Skein was that when I get into some sort of rut, I get bored a little bit with, uh, with, with Sherlock Holmes, uh, which I always feel guilty about because I always want to, you know, keep reading them. I always go to one of your books, uh, especially if there's uh, one that I haven't read uh, of, your, of your Holmes pastiches. And the delightful thing about your books is that for some reason, uh, your approach and your style, once I start reading your books and finish them, it always gets me excited again about the, the Sherlock Holmes canon. And it always makes me want to go back and read the original stories, which is actually very rare, when, uh, which happens rarely when I finish a pastiche. Because usually when I finish a pastiche, and I'm not going to compare and mention other books, but when I finish pastiche, pastiches by other writers, usually you get your fill and the voice of the, of the uh, new writer is a bit too intrusive, maybe. But yeah. your voice or, and your style, the, you, your, your voice is very much felt because your books are, your pastiches are very different than other pastiches. But you tend to get the, the, the you tend to catch uh, the spirit or the, the original spirit of the Conan Doyle writing. And I got that in spades um, in Revenge from the Grave. Uh, it felt to me very fresh. It felt to me very energetic. It felt to me like uh, one of the more action oriented stories from the, from the Doyle, uh, Conan Doyle canon. Um, and it's very intense. You put Holmes through the ringer in that book, uh, <laughs> and uh, I just uh, loved it. Well, so uh, yeah. I'm very pleased to, and those are very kind comments that you made. It is interesting about the um, the Revenge from the Grave because it's it's my ninth, uh, ninth Holmes novel, Stroke Pastiche, um, and it. A Holmes novel is a very difficult thing to to uh, to do. I mean, Conan Doyle had difficulty with it because if you look at the um, the, the three of the stories, the, the Sign of Four and uh, the Study in Scarlet and uh, the Valley of Fear, they are you used the word earlier novellas. They, they are really Holmes novellas with with another story stuck on the end, as it were. Um, half the half the book isn't directly involving Holmes. The only other one, of course, is uh, The Hound of the Baskervilles, which, again, Holmes is missing um, from a great chunk of the book. In fact, a friend of mine refers to The Hound of the Baskervilles as a Watson novel. Um, so that's always been a problem uh, to, because Sherlock Holmes is such a clever, brilliant detective, to extend his investigation over you know 60 70,000 words rather than a short story of about 10 10,000 words where uh, he can s solve the case in a few days it is a bit difficult uh, without making it sound or appear tedious 
with revenge from the grave i got over that uh, hump as it were by having homes as you will know now uh, having read the book uh, go into uh, disguise and disappear in one sense from his familiar surroundings and, and from the company of watson but um undercover as it were rather like he did in uh, his last bow um and and we follow this character who the reader knows it's Holmes, but he he is not playing Holmes, as it were. And uh, I thought that helped me extend the novel or extend the story uh, to novel length. Yeah, and you and and to get technical a little bit, I think part of of uh, which which is something you, you I think you always do with with your pastiches is that you don't constrain yourself with only the first person perspective of Watson because you go between or you shift between the 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 first person perspective of Watson and the third person which Conan Doyle rarely did uh, yeah. so I think that also frees you a bit it, it frees your style a bit but again I think it's uh I don't know. I think revenge from the grave, if you would allow me to say so, and I'm not being, uh, you know, I'm, 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 I'm just, uh, I'm not heaping praise on you just because I want to heap praise on you because uh, oh, I hope you do. can. <laughs> <laughs> I think you can guess that uh, I'm, you know, I'm, 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 I'm trying to be honest here, but I think really revenge from the grave is your best Holmes book, uh, to be honest, because it's just. I think with that book, uh, you, you took your, your style uh, in a completely different, uh, not, not, not direction, but I think you, you, it's, it just feels so, so fresh. Uh, it's the most intense. Uh, it's not a very long book because, uh, as you mentioned, all the Holmes novels, even the Conan Doyle books, uh, are basically shorter books. Not, your book, of course, is a novel. It's not a novella, but uh, it's a short novel shorter novel and it's also very intense that makes it intense but uh i think you were really um you really captured something something special in that book and keep in mind that that's coming from someone who just adores the tangled skein so uh i just want to get a little bit into how you approach writing a new pastiche, a new Holmes pastiche, because as you mentioned, this is your ninth uh, attempt at writing one. So what drives you to try to innovate or find corners of the canon that haven't been explored before? Or what stylistically and artistically do you, that, that still motivates you to try to do something different? Well, it, you hit the nail on the head there by saying do something different. Because obviously, um, when I started writing uh, Holmes' pastiche, the Tangle Skein being, uh, it, actually, the Tangle Skein was the second, the entire affair was the first. But uh, there were not uh, that many um, pastiches around. Now, there are an awful lot. And uh, it becomes harder and harder to find something new to do. I, I don't want to retread. Um, the path that was uh, set out by Conan Doyle. I always wanted to, whenever I write a Holmes story or a novel, uh, to do 
to be true and honest to the characters as created by Arthur Conan Doyle, but do something a little bit different, a little bit of my own, uh, if you like, input. Um, because I'm fairly sure that if Conan Doyle were alive and writing today, he would be doing, he would be experimenting a bit with, with his character. I thought I was going out a bit on a limb with Revenge from the Grave by having that section I mentioned earlier, where Holmes is no longer the dear stalker chap in Baker Street, but he is, uh, he's, he's placed himself in prison uh, to, uh, to, to help solve the case. And I wondered whether I was going a bit too far with that. But um, the, certainly the editor at the, the publishing house, Titan, uh, didn't raise any qualms about it. And they're very, very strict on, on keeping um, true to the, the Conan Doyle code, as it were. Um, also, I with wanting to do something different but, but familiar, and obviously I wanted to um, have a very interesting villain, and hardly ever has Holmes had a female villain. Uh, to contend with. Um, and so uh, I, I like the idea of that coming up against feminine wilds. Um, so that uh, excited me to, to try and do that. And going back to the style element of it, I, I, I do enjoy um, moving away from the first person narrative to uh, an objective narrative, if you like, uh, to, to make it almost like a jigsaw puzzle um, where you get a scene which Holmes has got nothing to do with and then you see how it, it slots into the whole drama. Um, the opening of um, Revenge from the Grave, as I remember, uh, is, is set in Paris and it involves uh, the female villain, S. And, uh, and it's a very dramatic opening and, and it's got apparently nothing to do with Holmes at, at that time. But you then see that it has um i i mean at the moment i have no uh holmes novel in view and that's partly because i haven't yet come up with something that i think would be exciting and fresh and not you know retreading old paths that i've retrod or or other writers have done um perhaps nine novels is enough <laughs> But um, yeah, I, I, I appreciate your, um, your comments about Revenge from the Grave because it, um, it was a, a difficult one to do, um, to, get it, to, to get it right, I thought. But um, your comments have been uh, very pleasing to hear. I think your books and good pastiches keep the canon alive. And when you read a book like Revenge from the Grave, which excites readers from different ages, uh, I think it, it, you know, it, it raises the interest again and it excites people again to investigate further, go back deeper, go back, investigate your work. And of course, through that, they investigate Conan Doyle's work. Um, so I think it keeps it fresh. And I think this is another way uh, of keeping people interested in fiction and literature from that era, uh, you know, just following up on what we were talking about earlier in terms of how do we keep younger people interested or even older people who have never been exposed to these books. So I think your book also works in that regard. Uh, it, it introduces, I think, people. It's 
I'm not sure if it's the best introduction to uh, to Sherlock Holmes. If if you haven't read Sherlock Holmes before ever, or if you are not familiar with uh, with uh, the Reichenbach Falls, for example, the incident there, I think it's it's not the best introduction. But I think it's good for someone who read a couple of stories or even one of the original Conan Doyle novellas. I think you can jump right into it. Uh, it's uh, because you also manage the neat trick of doing these little callbacks to the uh, to the original adventures and yeah. the original books. Uh, maybe if someone, of course, I can't really look at it objectively from that per- perspective because I'm very familiar with the with the Conan Doyle canon. But I think even if someone is not really familiar, only only superficially familiar or just a casual fan, I think they can still enjoy Revenge from the Grave. But I would say that maybe people should go to the Tangled Skin first in terms of your work <laughs> uh, and then go to the Revenge from the Grave or and then uh, maybe uh, make it a trilogy by reading The Hound of the Baskervilles. Yeah. Well, I, would, one yeah. thing also I ought to say about, you know, my approach to Holmes is uh, my original introduction to him came uh, from from The Hound of the Baskervilles, the, the book, when I was a schoolboy, and also uh, seeing the Basil Rathbone films on television. And there's always an element in my books, I think, of the Rathbone films, in the sense of I always have a dash of adventure. Now, um, Conan Doyle also had a dash of adventure, but not in all the stories. But it was interesting that... that um, Edgar Allan Poe is regarded as the father of the detective stories with his, his C. Auguste Dupin, who carried out a lot of the, the um, sort of deducting, deductive qualities that um, the Holmes did, you know, be, being able to read his companion's mind and say, yes, you obviously uh, didn't get any posts this morning because um, you're, you're not wearing your monocle or whatever, something like that. Um, uh, but what Poe didn't do in his stories uh, with, with Dupont was have um, thrilling adventures. It was almost intellectual exercises. And what Conan Doyle brought to the mix was that sense of adventure. One of my favorite lines to illustrate this point um, is from The Hound of the Baskervilles, where Watson says, I've never seen a man run as Holmes ran that night, running on the moor towards the dawn. Um, and it shows that Holmes was not just an intellectual uh, genius, but he was a man of action. He, he boxed and fenced and so forth. And so he was an all-rounder in that sense. And I always wanted to include those elements within my story. So there were, there were times when he's trapped in a burning building or something or or climbing down a wall or, or running after something, um, as well as sitting with his pipe, making uh, deductions about a, an old book or a, a manuscript and so forth. I remember um, that my, <clears throat> I think my first exposure to the home stories was, of course, the short stories. I think it was a beat up copy uh, that I got from the British Council Library when I was young. And uh, it was, I think, the uh, the case of the Whitechapel vampire. I think it was called. I'm, I just don't. I don't want to 
say it wrong, or the Sussex vampire, I think. Sussex vampire, yeah. Yeah. And uh, stories like that, and I just uh, loved it. And uh, But when I got a chance to get my hands on a copy, when I was maybe in my 20s uh, of the, uh, I think it was also a Wordsworth edition, also Tales of Mystery and the Supernatural, um, that had uh, a study in Scarlet, and I think uh, the Valley of Fear together in one volume. Yeah. And I remember when I was reading Study in Scarlet, and I think uh, I think it was uh, your introduction to that book, I think, uh, that mentioned that Study in Scarlet is the first appearance of, of Sherlock Holmes. And I remember reading that book, my first Holmes novella, and getting... The, just uh, surprised by how, as you mentioned, uh, energetic and agile Holmes wa- was in that book. He was just moving all, all about and, you know, kneeling on the floor and yep. uh, almost, go, you know, uh, behaving like a contortionist to get the evidence. And he mentioned being a boxer and so on. So uh, I think, yeah, that aspect of the character, uh, which Conan Doyle originated very clearly, uh, sometimes a lot of pastiche writers miss and a lot of people who make movies about homes with the exception of the Guy Ritchie movies, uh, which we, I, I know you don't like. <laughs> uh, uh, I think with the exception of those, uh, a lot of writers just go with, the, uh, you know, stiff, intellectual, uh, aloof uh, version yeah. or, or aspects of uh, Holmes' personality. I think uh, what was apparent in your work uh, and in the Tangled scheme, uh, also it had that aspect, also it had that adventure aspect, uh, that hammer uh, gothic aspect of, you know, being terrifying and energetic and these chases and so on so i think yeah that also i think that's also part of the appeal maybe of uh, or what differentiates your your work as well this this uh, action adventure aspect yeah well i mean but, I, I i i have i confess openly that um the tangles game was a, a sort of a, a, ma- a mashup or whatever of, of uh, Doyle and Hammer films, um, which uh, you know, in many ways, I wrote to entertain myself. You 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 talked earlier about um, you know having read the Conan Doyle stories and you want more, and so there you go you go to pastiche. Well, I read the, the, uh, them in my early teens and wanted more, and of course there wasn't then there, there really wasn't any more. Um, uh, apart from the uh, the collection, uh, the exploits by um, Adrian Conan Doyle and so on. So, but that prompted me at about the age of 14 or 15 to start writing my own stories so that there would be some more Sherlock Holmes. Obviously, they were very immature juvenilia, but nevertheless, that's when I started writing about Sherlock Holmes, when I was about 14 or 15. And uh, obviously, eventually, um, I, I produced something that uh, was publishable, but that was not until my 20, mid-20s. 
I want to talk a little bit about uh, because I, I've I've been wanting to ask you about about this uh, since we talked last year because you know how much I enjoyed the audio dramas, uh, the last act and the death and life of Sherlock Holmes, especially the the death and life of Sherlock Holmes because it uh, it was almost I think uh, I think it is almost an experimental piece of of, uh, of fiction. Yeah. It just goes all over the place and it feels very fresh, very, don't want to say modern because I don't really like that word. It's, 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 a, it's kind of a limiting term, but you go in areas and you use different styles and different approaches and the way the, the production, the audio production was produced was just, uh, I think, by uh, Big Finish, I think, the, the, the mm-hmm. company that uh, made, made it. And I talked to you last time about how much I enjoyed them. And you just mentioned back then that you actually wrote a third play as well. So what's going on with that? Well, uh, yes, there is a third play. And it had a week's run in Edinburgh in 2019 uh, towards um, uh, the end of that year, I think it was, uh, just before the the pandemic uh, came along. Um, and so it's it's in limbo at the moment, um, sadly, because it, it's a very, uh, again, it's a very interesting uh, idea. Um, it, again, this, this is a two-hander. It's got Dr. Watson and Sherlock Holmes in. Um, and it is really uh, an, an ex- a close examination of their relationship. Um, it opens very dramatically in, in darkness and the sound of a clanging cell door. And the voice from the darkness says, let me out of here, let me out of here. I did not kill him. I did not kill Dr. Watson. And then the spotlight comes up on Sherlock Holmes and it it moves on from there. And it really is uh, an investigation of their relationship. They're working together on what happened towards the end uh, of their relationship and the, the, so the Moriarty bit is brought in a little bit, and and it, it got very good reviews. And Dara said that the the two people playing the parts, um, Michael Kidd and uh, Michael Daviot, sorry, and Mark Kidd uh, as Watson and Michael Daviot as Holmes, were absolutely brilliant. Uh, Michael Daviot was not unlike, or is not unlike, um, Jeremy Brett in appearance. And uh, a fantastic actor, not a famous actor at all, uh, a jobbing actor from from Edinburgh, but they brought the play to life brilliantly. And uh, it is available, I think, still on YouTube. Uh, And it's called uh, Sherlock Holmes, The Final Reckoning. But on the play front, um, the final act, the last act, rather, is being revived and it will be appearing next year. It starts off in London for uh, for, a, for a week or two weeks, then it goes to something I've never heard of before, um, the Hollywood Fringe, which is a uh, obviously a, a fringe drama festival in Hollywood, and then going back to uh, the Edinburgh Fe- uh, Festival in August. Um, and the actor who... Uh, uh, who is going to play Holmes, uh, is using the same director as uh, the original play. So Holmes is going to be strutting his stuff on the stage 
my, my homes uh, next year, which pleases me tremendously. But I wish, yeah. I wish we could get the uh, the two hander up and running because I, I think, quite honestly, that's my best drama. I I just uh, look forward to. I hope I get a chance to actually, uh, if it's next year, I hope I get a chance to be in London at that time and get a chance to actually see it on the stage. And uh, I didn't know that the final reckoning was uh, available on YouTube. I'll just look for that and uh, and, yeah, and watch well, it. Well, uh, it was until recently. If you just uh, type in, you know, Sherlock Holmes, the final reckoning, um, that should should you should get it. Yeah, if I hope do, so. If you do, let me know what you think. Yeah, I definitely do that, and uh, I look forward to it. And I also hope that one day it also gets an audio version uh, through one company or another, because I can tell you as someone who just loves radio and loves uh, audio drama, how much I enjoyed the Big Finish productions, because there is also an adaptation uh, of the Tangled Skein, uh, which is also very entertaining. It's not as good as the two audio dramas uh, based directly on your text, but the Tangled Skein also is very, very entertaining. And uh, I hope Big Finish or another company would pick up Final Reckoning and do it. I just want to, because I know that you uh, wrote uh, a lot of uh, of essays and you have a book about uh, the, the on-screen depictions of Sherlock Holmes. So what are some of your favorite on-screen portrayal of Holmes that people might not know about? Oh, well, not know about is... Uh... I mean, uh, I, I've always said when people ask me, who, who is your favourite uh, actor to play Sherlock Holmes? And I, I, I am torn between Basil Rathburn and Jeremy Brett, of course, very, very well-known performers. And, and Peter Cushing is in there. I don't know how, how many people will be familiar with Ian Richardson, um, who played Holmes in, in a couple of films, the, the Sign of Four and TV movies there were, The Sign of Four and The Hound of the Baskervilles. He was he was like Cushing um, in the sense that he took the role very seriously and did a lot of research, reading the stories, picking up points about Holmes's character and mannerisms and habits so that he could actually put them into uh, into the his performance on screen. Um, Ian Richardson, a very, very good Holmes, um, and perhaps not one who comes immediately to mind. Um, and uh, that's about it from from pe people who uh, are not familiar. You know, I, I, um, it's difficult to know who who people know. I mean, if you mentioned Cumberbatch, and uh, as you said earlier, Robert Downey Jr. does not fit into into my uh, my best books. But and the thing about the Robert Downey movie movies um, is that they would be fine adventure films, uh, lots of exciting, thrilling moments and so forth. But why call him Sherlock Holmes when he is far removed from the Sherlock Holmes? that Conan Doyle created. He's a scruffy, ridiculous character. If he was called, you know, Burt Bloggs investigates, then we could take it on board. Um, so it's just a slight insult, I think, to, to Conan Doyle's memory. But that, that's my personal view. It's, it, it's probably not a, a general one. 
Um, well, the, yeah, there was a third movie, but it was cancelled. So yeah, that's yeah. that. Well, we hope so, really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, uh, I don't want to take any more of your time. You've been very generous already. And uh, David, thank you very much for uh, joining me uh, this morning. And uh, I hope I get a chance to see uh, your work on the stage next year. And I hope I get a chance to meet you one day when I when I come to London, hopefully next year, uh, the, the summer of next year. And uh, I look forward to uh, more of your work and I look forward to revisiting your work. And I look forward to reintroducing your work or introducing your work to uh, readers. Uh, and thank you very much. Well, I, I have to say, I, it's been a pleasure to talk to you, and, and you've been so kind about my work. It's very encouraging to, uh, you know what it's like um, as a writer, um, you stare at a screen most of the time, um, and you you then your book is published or your work is published, but you don't know what people think about it. Um, and to have such nice comments from you is very encouraging and delightful. Thank you for your, uh, your time, too, and... Uh, you never know. We may meet up next year. Yeah, ho I hope so. And uh, again, thank you. And uh, this will be the Christmas episode. I think it's very fitting. Well, I'll, I'll leave you with this thought. So to you and all your listeners, compliments of the season. You have been in Afghanistan, I perceive. It is a universal truth that we take the good things in life for granted, the good people in life until they are no longer there. No ghosts! Need a plan! It is a dangerous habit to finger a loaded firearm in the pocket of one's dressing gown. That summons in the night. The furious cab ride through the darkened cobbled streets of the metropolis to one of the great railway cathedrals, ready to be steamed away by the midnight express to a house in the shires where foul and bloody murder had been done. What I needed was a challenge worthy of my skills. Something to electrify the brain cells into detective action once again. Something recherché. And I got it. Sherlock Holmes, The Last Act. Thanks for joining me on this special Christmas episode of the Dark Fantastic Podcast. This is the last episode of the season and the last episode for this year. So, season's greetings and see you again soon. Mm -hmm.